Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You are listening to Bloomberg Switched On, the BNEF podcast. I'm Dana Perkins, and today we're going to talk about the United States. The whole world seems to be looking at the upcoming U.S. election, and with November 3rd right around the corner, there is plenty to speculate about. So today, we're going to hear from Ethan Zindler. He's head of Americas here at BNEF, and Stephen Monroe, who is a policy analyst here. We discuss some of the significant things that have happened over the past four years and what's hanging in the balance for the next. What's the status of the Paris Climate Accord, the Clean Power Plan, or the Green New Deal? What's happening with coal? natural gas, renewables, and electric vehicles? And how about that $2 trillion in climate spending that was promised as a part of Biden's platform? Where do executive orders and the filibuster rule play into this? Well, we've got a lot to cover today. But it's also worth pointing out that one of the things that we did not cover was the Supreme Court and what the replacement for the late, great Ruth Bader Ginsburg will mean as we had recorded this just prior to her passing. A quick reminder, BNEF does not provide investment or strategy advice. We have a full disclaimer at the end of the show. Now, let's talk about the United States. Ethan, Stephen, thank you for joining us today on Switched On. Glad to be here. Great to be here. Today, we're going to talk about the upcoming U.S. elections, and we're going to get into some of the stuff that BNF specifically knows around power and transport and natural gas, and then some policies. But let's let's first start and talk about the scenarios that could potentially exist. So looking forward to November, what are the potential outcomes of the election? Well, I guess I'll kick it off then. You know, obviously, the thing that gets the most headlines here and internationally is the presidential race. And so stating the obvious, we will in theory have a winner the day after the election. It might frankly take longer, but uh, hopefully we will have an undisputed winner of that election. It'll either be President Trump winning re-election for four more years or former Vice President Joe Biden taking the office. So that's the first thing. And then, of course, there are a lot of important races taking place, so-called down the ballot in terms of the, uh, the Congress. And in those cases, the real, the real key area that we're watching and many others are is the U.S. Senate. The Democrats control the House of Representatives at the moment. That does not look like it's under much threat at the moment. The Republicans, however, control the Senate and uh, only by a small margin. And so one of the things that we'll be watching very carefully is to see if Democrats win the relatively small number of seats they need to take control of the Senate. They could take control by picking up as little as three additional seats uh, if Biden wins the White House. So let's dig in to what this election means for some of the things that we specifically cover at BNF. So let's first start, I think, and talk about power sector emissions. So there are where I'm recording from. So in London, we talk a lot about net zero, 2030, 2050. What is kind of the future of emissions in the United States and kind of what's the dialogue like going on over there? Well, I'll start. Um, and, and Steph, please um, fill in any holes here. Uh, you know, long story short is the arrival of President Trump 
talking about CO2 emissions at the federal level has largely gone out of style. And that is, you know, one of the first actions that the president took was to set in motion or to start turning the wheels towards getting the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Accord. Uh, and uh, while that process is is actually not officially done yet, for all intents and purposes, there have not been any real efforts from the federal government to try to meet the Paris targets. Interestingly, and somewhat ironically, uh, the U.S. has been reducing our CO2 emissions even quite quickly uh, during uh, the last three years. And that is really largely due to the major dynamics that we were seeing in the power sector before the arrival of Trump. And so, uh, so actually, our emissions are down substantially from power, although they've been rising a bit from the transportation sector. But the bottom line is that uh, the U.S. really is not in any great position now to meet the obligations of the Paris Agreement, you know, based on, on what we've seen over the last couple of years. I'm guessing some of these power sector emissions reducing has a lot to do with coal. So can you elaborate on that a bit? Because I think that's been one of the topics that's come up over and over again during this current president's tenure in office is kind of a move to try and see if they could rescue the coal industry. But what has that actually been like and what does the future of the coal industry look like, agnostic of who's president? Well, I think what can be said of interest here is that the U.S. and Europe have basically been tracking each other in terms of the uh, elimination or removal of coal from the power mix, but they've been doing so with entirely different objectives. And what I mean by that is that in Europe, the withdrawal of coal from the market has been largely policy-driven and has broad public support. In the U.S., the removal of coal from the power mix has actually gone against the policy intentions of the Trump administration, which has taken every step that it could can take without seeking legislative approval to retain coal in the power mix. And specifically, what I'm referring to is that in early in his term, President Trump canceled the Clean Power Plan, which was a signature power uh, initiative of the Obama administration that would have effectively eliminated coal over a period of time. But despite eliminating the Clean Power Plan and replacing it with a much more lenient regulatory package as far as coal is concerned, the U.S. has continued to see withdrawals and retirements of coal plants. So in summary, what we have in Europe, which is largely policy-driven and to a lesser extent economically driven, in the U.S. is uh, the result of almost exclusively economically uh, determined factors. Yeah, I, I would totally agree with that. And just to put one you know, specific around it, I mean, when Trump came into office, coal accounted for about 30% of all U.S. power. In the, it's now down to about 23% uh, in 2019 and very well could be lower this year as well. You, know, you look at the raw numbers, there hasn't been a lot to move the needle. That hasn't been lack for, for lack of trying on the part of the Trump administration, but as Steph mentions, uh, and I would, I would agree, I think there's only so much that an administration can get done unilaterally. You do need, uh, you know, to really move the needle for coal, you would need some kind of legislation through Congress. And the Democrats control the House. Uh, and even when Republicans controlled the House, there was no major action towards that. So we've gone from 30% down to 23% of the mix. What has made up that 7% gap and what does the power mix look like now? Well, just maybe to round it out, I mean, we went from gas being about 34% of generation to about 38%. 
And renewables have jumped as well, despite, again, clear aversion to them from the president, still under, you know, uh, you know, about 10 percent in that neighborhood for non-hydro renewables at the moment. But it has been growing on a generation basis. So it's really been a combination of gas and renewables. Nuclear has been slowly declining, uh, as we've seen, you know, each year, several nuclear reactors announce their retirement and come offline. But we still have about 100 gigawatts of nuclear, which is about 20% of the total power and is about 50% of the zero carbon power that the United States has online. It needs to be pointed out that the decarbonization of the U.S. power sector still remains a, a bit of a distant objective, even though coal is retreating rapidly from the market. As Ethan points out, gas is taking a large share of the market being abandoned by coal. And gas, while it certainly is burned with much less carbon emissions than coal, nevertheless is an emitting resource. And it is one that the Trump administration has gone to great lengths to support on a separate track than its relatively unsuccessful supporting measures for coal. Well, so then let's talk about some of the potential outcomes, because one of the things that came up, I think, on the campaign trail was that Biden's got this $2 trillion potential green focus energy and climate plan. What does it look like in the future for renewables and, I guess, the power sector altogether, depending upon these two outcomes? Are these going to be massively divergent or is it still sort of separate from whether or not who is president and what matters much more who's in the Senate? Well, if we want to look at Biden's platform, and I certainly think it's appropriate to do so, you are correct. He has committed to make a $2 trillion accelerated investment during his first term, that all of which would be directed broadly towards meeting ambitious climate goals that, according to Biden, is demanded by the science. Spreading that $2 trillion out, much of it would go to infrastructure and specifically the power sector. He also would like to devote a segment of it to R&D technologies or R&D uh, into technologies that uh, such as battery storage. And he, he would negotiate, he wants to negotiate fuel standards. He wants to renegotiate uh, fuel economy standards that have been diluted in the Trump administration. And in doing so, that would have the effect of raising demand rather rapidly for electric vehicles, which, as I mentioned, would be a significant rece uh, recipient of some of this financial largesse. So if I could just add a little on the politics on it, $2 trillion may sound like a lot of money, and that is because it's a lot of money, a lot of money. And um, were these normal political times, I think I would probably say there's just no way that um, we'll ever see that kind of money allocated in this area just because of fiscal conservatism. However, you know, these are very unusual times, and we have already seen well over a trillion dollars in stimulus that's been passed by Congress and several trillion more that's been passed by the U.S. House of Representatives, but not by the Senate. So there does seem to be a recognition that these are extremely unusual and challenging times in the U.S. economy. I don't know where, where we'll end the year in terms of our GDP, but it will be a, a very sharp contraction. So, you know, that does make a lot more possible. But there is definitely going to have to be quite a, a result in the current election, I think, for us to see a number like $2 trillion even anywhere near consideration. And namely, uh, Biden will have to win the election. Democrats will have to win the Senate. Uh, and then one other fairly technical but important thing will have to happen, most likely, which is that the Democrats will have to agree to essentially abolish something known as the filibuster rule in the Senate. In other words, 
they will have to change the rules so that uh, all you need is 50 plus one vote to make something happen in the Senate. Right now, without getting into too many technical details, basically it's very hard to do a lot of things in the Senate without having 60 votes. But if you drop that to 51, a lot more becomes possible. Yes, and I agree with Ethan's observation that $2 trillion is a lot of money, and it certainly is uh, the eye-catching part of Biden's platform. Uh, I would suggest, however, that perhaps one of the more significant, perhaps the most significant part of his platform is his call to completely decarbonize the power sector, or I should say make the carbon sector carbon pollution-free by 2035, which is less than 15 years away. That's a tremendously ambitious undertaking if Biden were to be elected president, and even if he were to secure a Democratic majority in both the House and the Senate. In other words, even if he had a full wind at his back, nevertheless remains uh, a a very ambitious undertaking. And there really isn't any precedent in uh, uh, an energy transition of that speed anywhere in, in history. Well, so staying on that theme of that money, what we discussed just earlier is regarding the coal industry and what will likely be its phase out for economic reasons. But when we're talking about the coal industry and why there's been so much emphasis on it in recent past, it really comes down to jobs and it comes down to people's livelihoods. And within that $2 trillion, is that considered to be a particular stimulus package? Is it considered to be a massive job creator or is it more focused on climate and CO2 emissions? Well, jobs has been the basis for Trump's stated support for coal. But the reality is that jobs in the coal sector began falling long before President Trump took office. And they today account for a a very small sector of the economy. Interestingly, Joe Biden's platform is also very jobs oriented. And so to a certain extent, you have both the president Uh, and the challenger basing their policies, their climate and energy policies on job creation. But the uh, Trump basis of jobs creation certainly would have to be expanded beyond coal to have much validity because of the fact that the coal industry is is a declining sector in the economy. I think in answer to your question, Dana, you know, is this about jobs? Is this about climate? The answer is yes to everything. I think that that's the intention here. Um, I do think one thing that's intriguing in the the Biden plan that I do hope, well, I, I think, frankly, ultimately will have to get addressed is that, you know, Biden's conception of a job is a unionized job um, with union worker protections and, and wages. And if we're honest, that is that is not the case for many jobs in the clean energy sector today. And so how you square that circle, I think, is going to be one of the more interesting challenges for a uh, Biden administration if there is one. Yes, absolutely true. I would point out that jobs is by far the most frequently used word in the uh, Biden campaign, but uh, the second most frequently used word is union. Jobs gets 53 mentions in the uh, in the Biden platform. Union gets 32 mentions, and both of those words uh, get more mentions than clean energy, carbon, uh, or power. Okay, so let's go into emissions, which isn't mentioned as often in his platform. And let's talk about transportation-related emissions, which are the largest source of emissions in the United States right now. So what does the future hold in the transportation space? In the Trump era, we've seen uh, a division grow between the U.S. and Europe, certainly, and between the uh, between the U.S. and China in uh, the level of electric vehicle penetration. And, and the U.S. is going to continue to lose ground 
to those two regions on EV adoption should Trump be reelected because none of his policy initiatives are intentionally aimed at promoting that particular sector. We at BNF expect that China and Europe together are going to account for a combined 81% of global EV sales in 2020. So you can see that the U.S. is a minuscule part of the remaining, uh, the, even if the U.S. were to have the majority of the remainder, we'd still be talking about a less than 20% share. So really, this is the current trajectory and likely to stay to stay on pace. So the economics aren't there yet for there to be wide range EV adoption. Uh, how about charging stations? Are those rolling out? Well, charging stations uh, as a recipient of policy support have received zero support in the Trump years, and Biden would pivot to a great deal of support, both by leveraging federal R&D, but also by leveraging federal procurement of electric vehicles and funding the deployment of charging stations to support them. So there's a pretty clear difference between the two candidates in uh, their view of the EV of, of the EV role in the marketplace. The interesting wild card, as I see it, is that U.S. is on the verge of uh, introducing to the market electrically powered light trucks, uh, which that's a big part of our of our fleet, vehicle fleet over here in the U.S., and it remains a very popular part of the market. So to the extent that the U.S. introduces electrically powered light pickup trucks and uh, SUVs, there does exist an opportunity for the U.S. to do a relatively rapid catch-up, or at least try to close the gap between the EV share of the fleets here and in the rest of the world. If I could add a, a small note of optimism, if I can, about U.S. And, and EVs, which is that, you know, we we are home to Tesla, obviously, um, and we're home to a number of other startups that are now raising gobs of money to be electric you know, car makers. And uh, and, and certainly the Chinese, uh, as, as Steph notes, you know, there's more there are more EVs on the road over there and there's more manufacturing over there. But we, we do have the one and only you know, truly global brand for electric vehicles in Tesla, and it is, um, and is proving popular really where it, almost any part of the world where you can get your hands on one. So, you know, I, I, I do think there's an opportunity for the U.S. To, to be a leader on the manufacturing of electric vehicles. It won't be easy by any means, and it would definitely help if we would have policies in place that could make this a reliable demand market here domestically. But I do think there is that that potential opportunity because as you guys both know, you know, buying a car, yes, you you do think about whether it's got a good, uh, does it make sense economically, but there is a, a completely non-rational part of the sales process as well that can drive, um, that can drive people to want to buy things um, just because they're cool or because they're really fun to drive. And it remains key in the U.S. in terms of the adoption of EVs uh, that fuel economy standards for uh, internal combustion vehicles be strict and to be additive over the course of years. And uh, the Trump administration um, has taken steps to, in effect, freeze the progress of rising fuel economy standards in the states. And it also has moved to take away the uh, ability of California to set its own requirements. So. Regardless of individual sectors of the EV marketplace, what is at present lacking and would continue to be absent in in the event of a Trump re-election are fuel economy standards that that push the market, if you will, towards the acceptance of uh, of more fuel efficient vehicles. 
vehicles and zero emission vehicles such as EVs. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. So it seems like there's a pretty stark difference depending upon the outcome of the next election regarding what happens in the transportation sector. Let's talk about U.S. emissions mix and part of the power sector, actually, which has to do with gas and oil. So oil and gas. What does that look like in the future? Because the U.S. has sort of had a, I think, renaissance was the word that uh, in our discussions leading up to today, Ethan, you were saying in regarding natural gas and um, is now a net exporter. Yeah, I mean, so basically, you know, the U.S. had just reached the point where we were effectively almost a net energy exporter uh, and were, uh, you know, a net oil exporter uh, and we're ramping up gas exports. And then, of course, along came this year, which has completely disrupted demand for petroleum products. But uh, it is just kind of amazing the level of uh, the surge that we saw of so-called unconventional production of oil and gas. I think there are very big questions, obviously, about where we go from here. Uh, First, of course, there's the industry itself which is now suddenly in a lot of pain and had been burning through cash, let's be clear, for quite some time, even before COVID-19 arrived. Uh, But now all of a sudden with a lower oil price environment, um, oil and gas producers are are definitely suffering from that. So that's the the backdrop that we have here. The the look forward and the, the piece that I'm sort of interested to see how it gets resolved is, as Steph mentioned earlier, at least on the power side, uh, Biden uh, is pledging to get us to 0% CO2 emissions from our power sector by 2035. Well, uh, you know, if about 39, 40% of our power last year came from gas, that's a lot of gas uh, demand that would in theory disappear. Uh, And then the question is, can that gas be used in some other way? Is there enough of an export market on LNG to make up for that? 
or there are other segments of the economy um, where gas can be used. You know, we still we certainly have a number of homes, particularly in New England, for instance, that are using oil to heat their homes. Could gas be used there? Um, but practically speaking, if you were to basically evaporate what is something I'm guessing about 30 or 40 percent of total gas demand uh, in the U.S. by going to zero percent carbon in the power sector, uh, that would have major implications. And so then the question is, what is the uh, Biden position on on fracking? Uh, what is its position on uh, what, what is the campaign's position uh, on doing fracking on federal lands, doing it on private lands? I would say I don't have a complete clarity on that question at the moment. The campaign has said a couple different things. The other day, there was an effort when he was in Pittsburgh to make make a point that uh, that he's not against all fracking. And it's very worth noting that Pennsylvania is a state that has benefited enormously for fracking, specifically for gas. Uh, and so uh, I think the politics on this one are, are tricky. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's... Um, it's, it's not at least entirely clear to me how we get to 0% in our power sector uh, without it affecting the gas sector. Uh, and I think there's some open questions uh, very much on that at this point. Yeah, I would add that I think it's, Biden has done himself, himself no favors uh, with his shifting positions on fracking. And uh, when he first declared his candidacy, he was in favor of a blanket ban on the, on the technology, then moved to uh, call for a ban on fracking on federally leased land only. As Ethan said, he recently told a Pennsylvania television interviewer that, quote, fracking is not going to be on the chop- chopping block to uh, remove support for fracking, which uh, would, would directly hit the economies of states like Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia, which may not be important in the overall scheme of things, but do have quite a number of electoral votes among them. And which of those states would be considered swing states at this point? Well, Pennsylvania is certainly a swing state. West Virginia would not be considered a swing state. Now, Ohio's a, a strange animal in that, historically speaking, no Republican has ever been elected president in the modern era without carrying Ohio. So what that means from a from a political standpoint is that, assuming history is to repeat itself, is that Trump must win Ohio in order to win the presidency, but it's not necessary for Biden to win Ohio to win the presidency. So we're thinking ahead to November when the election takes place and January when there's the inauguration, but how about other significant dates and things that are going to exist beyond that, that the next president either will inherit or have the ability to continue and take forward? Well, the answer to your question has to do with this rather distinctive function uh, that the president enjoys in the American system, which is the ability to issue executive orders and to make very important, very broad, very high impact decisions without the consent of Congress. And as a result of that, what we're facing now is a situation in which President Trump during his term has taken a number of actions that affect the energy economy that have been done without consultation with Congress and therefore can continue to continue to live on even should Trump be turned out of office. Uh, let me give you some examples, all done by executive fiat. Trump withdrew the U.S. from the Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, he vacated the Obama-era clean power plan and replaced it with a rule that is much more diluted with regard to its requirements. Uh, he ramped up offshore oil and gas leasing. Uh, he approved some major uh, uh, oil pipeline projects, bringing uh, imports from Canada into the U.S. Uh, he reversed the 2016 requirement that oil and gas companies monitor methane uh, releases from their wells. He imposed tariffs on solar cells and modules and inverters. 
uh, all of which are essential ingredients to solar project development, and all of which, uh, and, and as a result, raise, uh, he raised the price of those projects. All of these things would stay in force should Trump be turned out, but because this is a double-edged sword, they could be reversed quite easily should Biden decide to do so. So really what we have is a situation here where the election, because of the power of executive orders and because of the differences in policy between these two candidates, really is an important undertaking and Congress is more or less uh, relegated to uh, second tier status. If I could just add on to that, I really agree with Steph in the sense that there are, are, and it's a really good question, Dana, that there are a lot of initiatives that basically the administration can pursue unilaterally. I'm literally looking right now at a news story that's just run on the Associated Press of 60 projects that the U.S. Department of Interior has sent a note to the White House about and saying, we need to fast track permitting of these. And it includes things like uh, a 5,000 well gas field development in Wyoming, uh, the jo Jordan Cove liquefied natural gas terminal in Oregon, uh, and a natural gas pipeline that's planned uh, for Virginia. So those are things that the administration can move quickly on. I will, um, though, caveat it, that everything we've just said slightly in saying that um, there are a lot of T's that need to be crossed and I's that need to be dotted when you give permission to uh, have a, a project go forward under what's called the Environmental Protection Act of the United States. And what that means is if you don't do all the right steps, if you if you cut corners, then you're open to lawsuits. Uh, and in a number of cases, the Trump administration sort of had their hands slapped by courts and had various initiatives essentially stopped because they did not follow all the rules of procedure. So while you can do a lot to try and move a lot of things quickly, if you move too fast and you don't take the right steps, then ultimately your decisions uh, may not get implemented. And then, of course, as, as Steph does note, um, if Biden wins, um, you know, a number of these things, he can revisit himself unilaterally, um, though some will be harder to undo than others, to be clear. Uh, once you've made a regulatory decision from an agency on something, it's, it becomes that much harder to pull it back. Well, because in specific reference to the power sector, you know, these are pretty big infrastructure projects and they take a while to get off the ground and then they're with us for a very long time. And, and what I'm hearing from you is, um, you know, that the there's only so much that someone can do in a four year period because it may all be unwound by the next president, which I think is not all. I guess maybe that's a bit extreme, but things can be unwound by the next president. Things are done by executive order, which to my understanding is not dissimilar from the transition from Obama to Trump as well, where there were a number of things that were able to be sort of be crossed off and refreshed for a four-year period. So my question really is to both of you, regardless of who wins, how dramatic do you think the impact is going to be given that you're somewhat bound by a four-year period? Well, you're exactly correct that President Obama in his term took a number of executive act, uh, actions that, uh, of course, succeeded his presidency and some of which remain in force. The difference between that transition and the transition that we're going to experience in the U.S. here uh, next year is that the U.S. is now laboring under a, a budget deficit that has never been higher in peacetime and has not been as high as it is now since World War II. And the absence of, of financial or, or fiscal flexibility uh, is a burden that regardless of who is elected, the president is going to have to deal with it. The, the spending 
ability and the willingness to legislate funding for any number of programs is going to be impinged as a result of the extraordinary spending that the U.S. has had to undertake as a result of the COVID virus. And I would just agree with Steph and, and with your question, Dana, which is, you know, four years actually isn't that long a period of time, but eight years kind of is. And so, you know, on a number of these issues around writing regulations or permitting projects or things like that, let's suppose, you know, the, the Trump administration um, gets it wrong the first time in writing a regulation that is weaker than than the one the Obama administration wrote. And let's suppose they then, you know, the environmental groups take them to court and, and essentially uh, pin their ears back a little bit. And that's happened a number of times. What can then happen is that Trump can, that their administration can come back and rewrite the regulation again and make it slightly less weak but have it pass muster with the courts. So I, I frankly, I, I frankly think that uh, the second four years of Trump could be very, very harmful from an environmental perspective because the one thing that I think those who are worried about the environment could take some stock in in the first four years of the Trump administration was, to be really candid, they were pretty bad at doing certain parts of government. They just, to my point earlier about dotting the I's and crossing the T's, they often just didn't do things the right way in terms of writing the regulations. They, in a number of cases, they put people in some of these agencies who, who didn't really know what they were doing, but they're getting smarter. And the guys who had been like number two or three at some of the agencies and were lobbyists and really understand how things work have moved up in the world. And they're getting better at writing regulations that will um, basically withstand court challenges. Uh, and so I do think that, uh, you know, if you get four more years of Trump, a lot of the things that they've they've sort of have gotten halfway towards putting in place over the last four years, they'll 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 get the rest of the way there. So there's one thing that we haven't addressed, and I think there's been plenty of buzz over the past you know year on Capitol Hill about the Green New Deal. Did Biden's energy and climate plan address that? Or has that been something that he has not made uh, a forward statement about? Biden pointedly did not reference the Green New Deal in his uh, energy and climate platform. And to the best of my knowledge, he has avoided uh, referring to it, at least by its formal name, uh, in any of his public appearances so far. That's right. I, I would say he sort of, for lack of a better term, finessed it. The one thing I would say is that he has certainly, I think, incorporated some of the ambitious ideas that were in the Green New Deal, however, as part of the process of coming up with his current uh, official climate and energy policy, there was a task force that was put together that was basically Biden people and people from the Bernie Sanders campaign. And as part of the Bernie Sanders campaign were some of the biggest champions of the Green New Deal, including Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, the freshman Congress uh, congresswoman from, from Queens, New York. And so that process did solicit a lot of their ideas. Um, and I definitely think a bunch of those are in the Biden plan, but but Steph's exactly right. It is not labeled as a Green New Deal. I would simply add that part of the problem with the Green New Deal, or at least saying its name for Biden, is that he has aligned himself so closely with organized labor. And a significant share of organized, organized labor has concerns about the Green New Deal because of its tremendously disruptive force over existing energy industries and jobs, some of which are unionized, but many of which are uh, relatively high paying and, and offer some some long time security. So Biden is is being honest to his constituency uh, in the sense that he is avoiding 
directly referring to the Green New Deal uh, as a sort of uh, uh, negative dog whistle, if you will, to his union supporters that he is aware of their concerns. Well, so I think I speak for all of us when I say that I think we're all going to be watching the outcome in November, and it will be very interesting to see what happens across these different sectors in January of 2021 and beyond. Ethan, Stephen, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks. It was fun. Thanks a lot. Today's episode of Switched On was edited by Rex Warner of Greystoke Media. Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute, nor should it be construed as, investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.